Welcome back to season two of Gold Ribbon Conversations, the podcast created to support families fighting childhood cancer in Ireland. Six children, adolescents and young adults are diagnosed with cancer every week in Ireland and the Gold Ribbon, which illuminates precious light, love, courage and compassion, is a symbol of strength and solidarity for each and every one. My name is Sinead O'Moore and it is my privilege to bring you this podcast on behalf of Childhood Cancer Ireland, a charity founded by and led by parents of children with cancer and survivors who know that one of the greatest sources of strength for this fight is conversation. Throughout this podcast, I talk to families impacted by childhood cancer, as well as the experts who care for our children's health, education and happiness. Yes, we talk about the fear and the pain, but we also talk about the hope and the friendship and the community that exists here, because you are not alone. Childhood Cancer Ireland values every single donation while on its mission to help more children, adolescents and young adults survive cancer and thrive as adults and support all those dealing with the long-term effects of illness and trauma. You can help by sharing this podcast and by texting GOLD to 50300 and donating €4 Euro or visit childhoodcancer.ie for more. Cancer treatment is evolving with new studies, methods and lifelines. In this episode, we are joined by 16-year-old Alex McElhenney and his rock of support, his mother, Louisa. In 2017, Alex was diagnosed with leukaemia when he was 11. In these five years, Alex has fought cancer physically and mentally. His treatment was incredibly long and tough. In 2021, he then faced the news of a relapse which led to a bone marrow transplant, but again, this wasn't enough. The fight had to continue, as he relapsed again in March 2022. This relapse presented Alex with a new opportunity, CAR T-cell treatment. Originally only available in the UK, but Alex became the first minor to have this innovative, game-changing treatment in Ireland. In this episode, we talk about mental resilience, stamina and mindset. We talk about pain, anxiety and grief for the normality cancer stole. We talk about the wider impact on siblings, family and friends. And we talk about never, ever giving up. Louisa and Alex, thank you so much for joining us on this episode um, one that I hope will bring a lot of support and a lot of positivity for people that are at the beginning of a journey or in the middle of a journey and not seeing the benefits, not seeing the light, not seeing where it's going. Because you have started a new treatment which has completely changed your experience so far. Um, tell us about what is going on for you. Um so so last year I had the um bone marrow transplant and that was like kind of we thought that was the end. Um and it was it was hard and I think I had it easier than most people, but it was still hard. So when they said about that I needed to have the CAR T, it was like it was nerve wracking because I th- I thought it'd be the exact same, even though they say like they're trying to get it into my head every day that like it would be way easier. I just didn't believe them. 
then the car T happened and like kind of straight away I was just I just felt like a wave of tiredness but I think it wasn't the car T I don't think it was more like it finally being done and like it's over there's not a big deal anymore because it was such a huge deal for like all the doctors and like everyone really and to me it wasn't a big deal but once it was done I kind of realized that it actually was a big deal as a treatment what what was being talked about in terms of how this is going to change the game well when he relapsed last year they figured okay the chemo didn't work it didn't do what we wanted it to do and the like standard treatment for boys is three and a half years of chemotherapy okay so it's like nine months of really what you expect to see when a child with cancer you know they're very sick they get infections they lose their hair they lose their weight they've got feeding tubes all the really traumatic things happened in 2017 may 2018 he went into maintenance treatment and he had chemo for two and a half years daily chemo the hair grew back he was able to go to school life became kind of normal-ish i went back to work um and then when he relapsed that obviously hadn't worked the leukemia had hidden okay and they had done bone marrow aspirates every three months during maintenance to see if they could see any leukemia. And the problem with leukemia is it hides. So they think it's gone, but they're also aware that it can come back. Now, when Alex rang the bell in 2020, they said, look, you haven't relapsed in the last three months. There's no reason to think you might relapse in the next three months. Because obviously when you end treatment, the fear kicks in. The comfort blanket's gone. What if, what if, what if? So it took us a good say six weeks of counseling for Alex to get him back to trusting his body again. And then unfortunately, six weeks later, he relapsed. So when he relapsed, they were like, okay, that didn't work. So now we have to find an alternative. So after giving him quite a lot of chemotherapy and immunotherapy in 2021, he met the criteria for the bone marrow transplant. Now at that time, it was CAR T and bone marrow on the table. And it depended on how he reacted to the chemo. Alex responds really well to chemotherapy. It kills his leukemia very quickly. So because he responded so well, they said, okay, we're not going to send you to England for this CAR-T. We're going to go for the bone marrow transplant. Before the children have a bone marrow transplant, their bodies are really deconditioned. Mm. So they have a lot of chemotherapy and full body radiation. The full body radiation was really tough. Like as a parent, that was one of the hardest things to watch because... It just takes so much out of the kids. So after, from February to May, having all that chemotherapy, then a week before the transplant, he had two days of heavy, heavy chemo, followed by five days of really heavy full body radiation, which was from Crumlin to James's twice a day for five days to get this full body radiation. I mean, it was just, it was horrendous. You know, I mean, at the time we were saying, oh, my God, it's amazing. And he's so good and he's gone in and doing it. But you look back at me, how the hell did he do that? You know, his little thin body and the bald head and they're wrapping him up in bandages and lying him down. And it was just really tough. So after all that, he was exhausted. He was not well. They did the bone marrow transplant. So we had no matches in the family. His both sisters were not a match. So he got a, a match from Germany. And she was a really, really good match. They said it was almost the best in like 10 years or something. The best like. match they could have gotten. Like it was practically a sibling match. So all the news was really good all along the way. 
um, before we went to transplant, Alex was really keen to give himself the best chance possible. So he chose to go on a clean diet. He exercised like he was out on his bike with immunotherapy on his back in his backpack going into his Hickman line and he was cycling the hills of hope. He was amazing. He went in really, really well, you know, and I think that's why he had such a successful experience in transplant. So he had the radiation, he had the chemo, and then the transplant is kind of underwhelming because it's like a bag of blood. You know, you think it's going to be this big operation, (laughs) but actually we're all in the room with these doctors and nurses and they were in the room for maybe an hour and they are counting the drips of blood of marrow going into his Hickman line. And that's it. But afterwards, the he, he so he has no immune system. The radiation and the chemo has completely basically bleached out his immune system. He has nothing to fight with. So you're in a really sterile environment then until his counts start to come back up. So I think they said to Alex, um, we expect to see blood cells on day 11. <laughs> and Alex said, I'll give you them on day 10. <laughs> and on day 10, they came in and said- oh, I said day 14. Oh, sorry. Day 10. They said day 14, they came in on day 10. So Mr. Determined here was like, I'm gonna beat the odds. So, you know, we were given all these kind of worst case scenarios for transplant and how sick he might be. and you know, if he got an infection or if he had to go to ICU. So it was a scary anticipation of going in. You know, he did have a bad reaction to one of the chemos right before the transplant and it had affected his lungs. We thought we were going to ICU that night and thankfully, and I believe because he was so fit and well, his, his lungs recovered by themselves and they chose not to give any more of that chemo. He was due one more. And I just said to the doctor, please don't give another one. So she didn't and he had the transplant. He, I mean, he wasn't running around the place, but I would say he flew through transplant. He put on the calendar on the wall, um, he had the transplant on the 4th of June and he had a little calendar for a month. And I went home, myself and my husband took turns staying in the hospital two nights on, two nights off. And I came back in one day and he had put on the calendar 26th of June, 27th of June, day of departure. And of course, the doctors were coming in every day and they clocked this and they were like, oh, it's not really going to happen now, you know, it's, but it's good to have a goal. And he walked out a day earlier than that. <laughs> so he, I think at that point, he was the quickest ever leukemia patient to walk out of a bone marrow transplant. And he walked. I mean, some, like a lot of kids will go out in wheelchairs because they just don't have the strength. He walked and he didn't just walk out of the chemo or, or out of the transplant ward. He walked to the door of the hospital, which is a long walk. The walk to St. John's Ward is like the longest walk in that hospital. It's um, it's it's like a marathon, it's just so long. It's the furthest point in the hospital, it's a long walk. So if you can imagine you're completely exhausted doing that walk, but he was determined on walking out of here. Where, so does, that, where does that come from? Where does that strength and that mindset come from? Uh, I don't know, like, I just like when I, got into it like when I was first diagnosed I was kind of always like that wasn't it yeah he's a very Um, positive always a very positive person I'm very positive intrinsically and kind of would be glass half full and he's very like me um Alex was never sick in his life before he got cancer never didn't get colds nothing um very happy-go-lucky very 
kind of got along with everybody, you know, um, very gentle little boy. As a little boy, he was very gentle and very just kind of happy-go-lucky. So I think it's intrinsic, but I also think when he got sick. Yeah, I just didn't like it being sick. I just wanted to, you know, be back out. And I knew that would be the fastest way to just stay positive. And then, because I remember saying to you, like, there's no point in arguing with the doctors if they're going to have to do what they have to do anyway. And that's what I just done for, like, the last four years anyway. And then this year I started to, like, get my way a bit and start arguing about it. <laughs> but, yeah. He started asking questions. Suppose he wants to take control of his own body. The support systems really helped us to stay positive and to be positive and to continue to be positive. Um, we found energy healing quite early on in Alex's journey. And that became a huge crutch, I would say, for Alex and for me and for the whole family. But that was a really big part of him kind of finding his own way to deal with things and the likes of the healthy diet and the exercise. You know, he started as a footballer, he ended as a cyclist, but there was always sport in there. And he always had an aim. I'm going to get back on the bike or I'm going to eat really clean and I'm going to give my body the best chance. So I think positive and quite emotionally mature to feel like he could take some control because as a, as a child, you get cancer, you feel like you have no control over anything in your life. So it's very important for the children, something that they feel like they're controlling, you know. So, um, so he had the transplant and we came home like on air with life. You know, we'd been separated as a family at this point for like five weeks. It was really tough, but like that, we kept that kind of positivity going and took all the support and he came home after about five weeks. It was really good. He still had a feeding tube, so he was having night feeds. Getting the weight back up was really important. Um, we were in and out of Crumlin every couple of days, um, getting bloods and that. But we were doing really, really well until August and he got a temperature. And we spent two weeks in Crumlin at that point. And that, I'd say, was harder than the transplant. Yeah, yeah because we felt we had done the job mm. and then to end up back in there it was the first time that I was concerned about his mental health you know it was like he was being defeated we had done what we were asked to do we had spent all that time in Crumlin we were going in every few days and then he got this temperature and he got another one and another one and they weren't surprised in Crumlin they see this all the time. They always expect it because he went home so quickly. But this is one of those things that I think there needs to be more communication about what can happen when you go home. Mm-hmm. You know, we know what was going on. And it wasn't until quite far into this day that we realized it was an after effect of the radiation that he'd had six weeks previously. Had that been relayed to us, we might have been prepared for mm. going back in. But we were so ill-prepared for being back in. We were done. We were like, you know transplants done we're done we're just going to get better and better and better so we had those few weeks in there um and that was really hard but when we came home he rallied again and he did really well after that didn't you yeah then september came along and he couldn't go to school he didn't have his immune system wasn't recovered enough to go to school so he missed out on school yet again um but he had a tutor coming here 
once a week. Um, he was keeping in touch with his friends via the PlayStation or the phone. And I think you were getting out very occasionally at that point. And then before we knew it, it was winter and, mm-hmm. you know, um, nobody was kind of going out and pandemic was all being talked about. So everyone was kind of batting down the hatches. So it didn't really matter, you know. Um, and then right before Christmas, he started to have an issue with um, retaining fluid in his ankles and blood pressure. So they brought us in before Christmas and we ended up staying in again for a couple of nights, but we weren't particularly worried. You know, they said it was probably not a side effect of treatment, which I kind of felt it probably was a side effect, but they'd said that they, they didn't relate to, and they were trying to get it under control. But while we were in there, so on the 17th of December last year, they came in and said, your last bone marrow has shown up 0.003 of a leukemia cell. So we were devastated. The two of us cried. We just did not see that coming at all. So they had said to us at that point, CAR T cell therapy is the next protocol. You'll be there in two weeks if this is a relapse. So at that point, it wasn't a relapse. It needs to be one cell. This was 0.003. So they did another bone marrow aspirate and they said, go home and we'll contact you after Christmas. So we had the whole of Christmas, the whole of New Year, waiting to find out, was he relapsing or was he not relapsing? And we got a call on the 4th of January to say it was clear he wasn't relapsing. So we jumped for joy. You know, we were just over the moon. Um, they did another bomber aspirin then a few weeks later and all clear. So they said, go book your holidays, book your flights, go back to school. Everything is fine and dandy. And then in the, so they're doing three weekly bone marrow aspirates at this point. And they said, you know, another one or two clear and you're in the clear, you're good to go. So we were really thinking that's it, we're, we're done. And unfortunately, a few weeks later um, in March, they rang and said that it, 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 he was relapsing and actually the negative in January was a false negative. Mm. Which, Sounds horrific, but you know what? I really feel that was meant to be because I think in January, we weren't in a place to deal with a relapse. We were just exhausted. Um, Alex and the other and the two girls and my husband had COVID. It was a really long month. And I think had they told us then he was relapsing, we would have just collapsed. So in a way, I think it was a bit of a gift from God that it was, we were told he wasn't. We got to celebrate. We got to relax for a few weeks. And then unfortunately in March, um, their fears were realized and it was a relapse so when they said he was relapsing they said it's going to be party and my first thought was oh god I don't know if I have the energy to go to England mm-hmm. you know we were so tired at this point and the first thing that Valerie the doctor said was you're not going to England you're going to be the first CAR T cell uh recipient in Ireland so I thought well look if that's <laughs> my mother's in heaven I said if she's doing one thing for me she's keeping <laughs> us here for this CAR T cell therapy but the energy around CAR T was so different compared to transplant it was so much more positive everyone had colleagues in England they were talking to they had kids who'd been to England who had come back and were just flying it and we did, you don't get too much information about other parents if you haven't met them, you know, but they're able to say this amount of kids have gone and they come back and they're doing really well. And they were able to give us the scenarios and the, they didn't give us statistics as such, but they kind of said, look, we have these kids that have come back and they're flying it. We didn't know of anyone who'd been through what Alex had been through. 
like pre-diagnosis. Anyone who'd gone all the way through maintenance and then relapsed and then had bone marrow and then relapsed again. You know, a lot of kids would have been in treatment and relapsed during treatment or during maintenance and didn't go through all those years. So we didn't know anyone who'd been in our position, you know, which is really difficult because you meet parents and they're going through similar things. But when you get to this point, it's like, oh my God, has anybody gone through five years of treatment? You know, so... And that amount of time away as a family unit. And, you know, as you said, you know, even when you've been talking about the different treatments and then the feeling of if you were sent to to the UK, what that would do as well, you know, detaching from from that. When you are so alone in that experience, like how, how do you find anyone to connect with? Well, I suppose each other. The only people that really understand what we're going through as a family is us as a family, you know, and we have amazing support. We have wonderful family, friends, community. I've taken all the support from all of the charities. You know, everybody is amazing, but really the only people that really understand is ourselves. And then when you're in Crumlin, you do meet families and, you know, you're talking to them and you're looking them in the eye and you are thinking these are the only people who really understand what it's like to be here. But actually, I suppose nobody fully understands another family's experience because every family is different and every family has different issues going on around the cancer. You know, I have two teenage daughters as well. You know, Ava had just made her communion when Alex was diagnosed the first time. Now she's 14. Lauren had just finished primary school when he was diagnosed the first time. She's now going into leaving cert. So take those chunks of their lives. Do you know, I was 39. I'm 44 now. It's a lot of time in our lives, you know, Um, so really, I think nobody else can fully understand what you're going through as a family, but everybody has something to offer. Everyone who wants to support you, I think if you take the support and the other thing I think moms and dads and everyone has to do, you know, we're putting so much into looking after our children's physical health and mental health and schooling and You know, you're just juggling all the time. And if you're going to do that, you've got to keep your own cup full. You've got to look after yourself. I mean, that became practically a job for me, looking after myself, you know, having therapies, having treatments, because if I drop the ball, the whole thing falls apart. And recently I did go back to work just for three days. But in those three days, what happened to us as a family was just unbelievable. You know, you don't realize how much you're holding the whole thing together. You're there to support everybody. And when you're suddenly too tired to support everybody, you're not there for X amount of hours in the day, you pull the rug from everybody. So you've got to make really difficult choices around your work, your identity, what you do with your time and how you look after yourself, you know, and that's, I think that's, that takes years you know, it's not something that you do for it during the treatment because during treatment, you're in fight or flight mode. You're in survival mode. And then you come home and you're you're still in that mode for quite a while. Like I'll give you an example. Yesterday, uh, is it okay if I share yesterday's story? I can't remember. <laughs> so we're home now. We're six weeks post-CAR-T. And last week they took the pick out and they said, off you go now for two weeks. Now, we have not had two weeks in Crumlin since last Christmas. So we're delighted. We're, you know, 
I'm going for my walks. I'm sitting in the garden. And then yesterday morning, Alex got up and he was really worried about himself because he had some burst blood vessels. That's a real fear. You know, we haven't had car tea and gone home and gone, woohoo, that's over now. We can move on. You know, he still has to learn how to trust his body. So he had these burst blood vessels. Now he'd gone out on his bike for the first time the night before. And I'd said to him yesterday, it's probably from exertion from being on the bike. But you were really worried, weren't yeah, you? Yeah. That's like, um, so one of the signs of leukemia is petechiae. And I know a burst blood vessel isn't the same as petechiae, but it kind of looks the same. Um, and I'm just like, like subconsciously examining my body like 24-7 basically. Um, so yeah, that was like, that was a worry and that was one of the things of when i realized when i relapsed i mean um that was one of the signs as well wasn't it yeah first blood vessel yeah um, yeah. yeah so but so he's um, examining his body yeah. constantly so then which is natural um, I, I can't i can't imagine knowing that you know something inside your body is working against you and you're there yeah. trying to defend your body when your body should just be doing it itself and it's not it, yeah. it's this weird yeah. battle that must play out all of the time yeah. yeah and i think it was it was an easier journey to trust his body after the first treatment was over like as i said it took about six weeks he went to counseling and then he got back to school and everything throw in a second and a third you know, at what point do you trust your body? Do you trust the treatment? And although we know this treatment is working, we've been told it's working, it's successful. It's going to take him a really long time. You know, and yesterday morning I was saying, no, you're fine. It's just the bike. And then I started thinking, oh God, you know, then your heart drops to your stomach. And then I said to him, okay, I'll contact the blood bikes and they'll, if they could come straight away, which they did, they're absolutely amazing. I took a blood sample and they sent it in. And a few hours later, we rang the hospital and his bloods are absolutely fine. They're better than they've been in ages. But when my husband came home last night, he said, are you okay? And I said, oh yeah, we just had a bit of a day. Alex was a bit worried. And he said, I can see that written all over your face. Mm-hmm. Now I thought I'd coped pretty well with the day, you know, and <laughs> done what I had to do and I was fine. But actually I was then back tense all over and worried and I didn't even realize it. And it was written all over my face, mm-hmm. you know, so. The journey after the journey is almost harder than the journey. We spoke to a mother um, in the season that first went out, in one of the first few episodes, who said how actually there was a, there was a real discomfort in treatment ending. That somehow yeah. when you're being held by the system and the appointment book and the you're in and you're out and you're being checked and you're being monitored, you're, there's a plan you're not better but there's a plan that actually the fall apart was when the treatment was over because there's this stillness but in yeah. the stillness I suppose everything that maybe you were suppressing finally comes yeah. up and you, you get a chance to process it mm. because when you're in it you don't process it when you're in it you're just in it you don't really think about it but when you come out of it and you're going for your walks and you're thinking how the hell did I do that how did we get through all those weeks apart how did we support him you know you look back at, at certain points in treatment or you know particularly difficult times and you just think 
how am I here? How am I still standing? And other people say to us, oh my God, you're so strong and you're so amazing and you're so positive. And you kind of think, well, no bloody choice. You know, we can sink or swim. And every time you have to make that decision and you have to make that decision sometimes every day, you know, to sink or swim. And you have to have your days that are bad and you have to, you know, have your cries and everything. But really when you come out of treatment, I think there's not enough discussion about that and not enough support around that. You know, there's a lot of support when you're in treatment and I kind of related to grief. Uh, like I've, the only person close to me I've lost is my mom. But I remember the support when she died. And then a few weeks later, everyone goes on with their lives, mm-hmm. of course, you know, but that was when I kind of realized I really lost my mom. And it's kind of similar, to be honest with you, that the support is really there when, when you're in the middle of it. But when you're processing it, the support isn't really there. So you have to support yourself in that, you know, so. Um, Time moves so on yeah. and there's kind of an assumption that everything is is well on the surface. But, yeah, you exactly. know, it, it's a deep trauma to have occurred. It and it takes it takes a lot of unraveling to put yes. the pieces back yeah. together and also the missed time you know the, yes. the, the time yeah. is gone you can't you can't get that back as you as you said the leaps in terms of your children's ages and how they've evolved and it's all been in the context of this yeah. is happening to your family yeah yeah and even now we still can't plan you know the the kids pals are going on holidays and they're saying to me we've cancelled more holidays than I, <laughs> than I care to remember but now they're when can we go I don't know and it's really hard to keep saying I don't know to your children you know and it's all hanging on what happens to Alex and that's hard for the girls it's hard for Alex you know but it's all hanging on what his body is doing what we're allowed to do so there's a lot of there's a lot of missing in you know um but there's also a lot of love and I would never say one without the other because it's all you really find out who good people are and you know how much people want to support you you know so it's I think you have to look at that too and kind of go well you know we're really lucky that we've had so much support um and we do know the CAR-T is working we found out last week we were told it would take four days and it took nearly a month to get the results back from the UK but um he got the CAR-T on the 30th of May and last week they came back to say it was what did they say CAR-T is detected so it's in his body Mm-hmm. And he has no B cells. So he had B cell leukemia. So the the CAR T is killing the B cells. So we'll have to have them replaced. But it is working, it is doing its job. But this is also very new to everybody in Crumlin. Mm. So, you know, I said to the nurse, okay, it's detected. What does that mean? And she said, to be honest, I don't know much past that, but it's working. So we were jumping for joy that it's doing what it's supposed to be doing, but we don't know what the future holds. And although we're very positive and we're so delighted it's working and we believe this is just what he needed, there's still a lot of I don't knows. Mm. And you have to you have to process those I don't knows and just and as you said, make that decision each day to still live it. Childhood Cancer Ireland knows what an important job siblings do. They brought the Beads of Courage sibling programme to Ireland and continue to fund it. Sibling Beads recognise the important role siblings play in every family and the challenges they face when their brother or sister is seriously ill. This programme helps siblings to tell their own story of courage and helps understanding and communication. To help fund this programme, please text GOLD to 50300 and donate €4 
or visit childhoodcancer.ie for more. How have you been able, I suppose, to to begin to process the last few years? And how do you plan on making sure that you can, you know, look forward to your teen years, to what's ahead, to the life, the the fun that's going to return for you? Like, are you talking to your mum? Are you talking to your friends? Are you talking to your sisters? You know? Yeah. Um, oh, like... I I am out a lot now. Like everything, as now is probably the most normal than the last five years have been. So I'm like really starting to get back um, on the bike as well. I'm like really like the last I have been on the bike for like I've done like twenty five kilometers in the last two days. I haven't done that for like. A year. Yeah, a year yeah. or two. Um and that's that's small, but like for me it's like a big distance, you know. Um and it's very important to you. And it's yeah. Um when I came back two days ago, I was like buzzing really. Mm. He, his eyes were just shining. <laughs> he yeah. had connected with some other cyclists on the road, and I think it was the first time you felt like you were back part of the community for real yeah. you know the cycling community have been very good to Alex um but I think it was the first time you felt like you were actually doing what they're doing yeah and he was just on air with life when he came in which was just lovely to see yeah and um but like yeah I'm going to my friends like every day as well if the summer was a bit better that'd be nice but what can you do um <laughs> and he has lovely friends yeah and then getting back like get my mind right it's gonna be it was a bit tough like I still not back properly but I think like three weeks ago they said I have burnout mm. um and it was I I knew I did because like I just wasn't myself um and like like kind of arguing with the doctors and like arguing at you more um, and then I think when they just said everything's like it's working that just kind of snapped me out of it um, but yeah it does take like a while like, like the counsellors have to like train me up to like start trusting my body again and I know it took six weeks the first time but I think it could take like maybe a year this time because like he did he has been training me up to like start trusting myself, like even headaches and stuff. If I get a headache, all, what I think is treatment. But when I go in and I say, and I say I've had a headache, they're most likely going to say, oh, it's just normal or like hormones or whatever. But like, it's just impossible to think like, oh, I'm just stressed or mm. whatever, something like that. Um, so yeah, it, it took a short time the first time but it's gonna take a while this time so I'll just have to go with it but I'll eventually get there and also he doesn't really know how much the treatment has impacted his development mm-hmm. yeah. yeah so that's been a big worry for you hasn't it yeah because like I'm I'm naturally like skinny like tall skinny kind of um, I think that's just in my genes and 
cycling as well is not going to help. But um, uh, like my friends are like kind of like not even much taller or anything, but like filling out more. Mm. And I know I, I know I am skinny, but I would fill out more at this age, and I would be going like, like, um, like lifting weights and stuff would it would like fill me out quicker than it is now or even the bike like my legs would fill out quicker when I was off treatment um I was off treatment for three months after the three years and I was back on the bike it took me like a month and I was flying and I did I filled out even though I was only like my age was like 13 14, 14 yeah um but yeah so they might have to start me on some testosterone, testosterone or something else. So obviously the radiation mm. and the chemo are going to have a huge impact on his hormones Massively. and his development. You know? So he doesn't know what he would have been like had he not had treatment. You know, he's looking at these young men, really. They look like men. Some of them, they're 16, but they're tall and they're deep voices and they're hairy. And he's looking going, <laughs> I don't look like, you know, and he mightn't have looked like them anyway. But it's always going to be at the back of his mind, you know, um, how the chemo has affected him, you know. Um, can he have children? That was a discussion that was had at the age of 14. Imagine having that discussion with your 14-year-old, you know. Um, and he went to a fertility clinic and looked after that side of things. So he has something there if, if it has affected his fertility. But, like, they're conversations that you never expect to have with your 14-year-old son, you know. Um, so that's all going to take, like, I think we should go to a late effects clinic. I don't know how long that goes on for, you know, and they'll have to look at every single part of his body internally, externally, and see how has his heart been affected, his lungs, his kidneys, you know, and we know they all have been affected. There's no two ways around it, you know, which is why Alex is so determined to be fit and to eat mm. healthy because he wants to give himself the best, the best chance. chance to, to... Yeah. Yeah. And to just take, take back that control and, you know, begin to have, your life you know and and this interrupted your life but it sounds like you know with the best will in the world it sounds like it's beginning to come back together again yeah definitely yeah it feels even after the bone marrow transplant it, it never felt like that for me like for no. you you said it did i don't know if you meant it but <laughs> and that like the recovery for this is like so quick and they said it would be quick, but I never, I never believe what they say because they just can't really. Because I always get things wrong, to be honest. But it's a game changer. Yeah, CAR T honestly. cell therapy. Like I hope that other parents never go through what we went through. I hope they go straight for CAR T in the future because the difference in this has been mind blowing. Like I would go as far as to say it's been a bit of a walk in the park. You know, yeah. to, after the shock and after all that there's been no real sickness touch wood at all yeah i don't think you've vomited once no. you had no um, mouth sores no back pain no. the chemo was really gentle the car t infusion itself was like done in 10 minutes two little 12 mil syringes in you go in you go and they said now we just leave that to multiply in his body and hope that his body accepts it his body accepted it you know, we were in for two weeks and the biggest problem in those two weeks was um, boredom. Oh yeah, boredom. <laughs> it's exactly what you want when you're on a cancer ward. You're thinking if he's bored, yeah. things are okay. You know, 
things are okay. There was no, he got a couple of temperatures, but they didn't make him sick. Um, but like he was sitting up in bed, chatting all day. He was on his phone. He was talking to his friends, you know? So, I mean, this was just, I mean, it didn't feel like cancer treatment. And, and he didn't now it's in hair. Ireland. And now it's in Ireland. He was the first to get it in Ireland. Yeah. And yeah, I didn't lose my hair. I think that was more the most important thing, really. Yeah, for Alex, um, that was important. Um, yeah, look, the whole treatment was actually, like, fine. Even the chemo before, but the steroids were, like, mm. I think they're underratedly depressing, really. Yeah, steroids are tricky for all the kids, you know, and unfortunately, Alex has had to have a lot of them, and they really do. But they don't get it out, though, that they're going to be hard. Yeah, yeah. Like... They say, like when you hear the word chemo, it's like scary. Yeah, you but already know steroids. enough about it to know that that's not a good word. But with the steroids, you're yeah. saying you don't know what to expect. No, and you hear steroids in relation to a lot of things. You know, oh. asthma. And you hear kids having steroid treatment, but these steroids are just unbelievable. You know, they com- and they completely take over your mind to the point that you're really not yourself, and it's not your fault, and you don't realize it's not your fault. So, mm. as a parent, to watch him, his moods dip, and know that it's not really his moods, mm. and to see him suffering mentally because mm. of a drug is really hard. But then they do have a very important role. And I understand that, but like Alex says you know, people don't understand the huge impact that steroids have on kids. And, and they really are in some ways bigger than chemo. Yeah, definitely. Mm. So, future's bright? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think, I haven't been in school for like... December 2020 18. was the last time I was in school. So, September, come September, I'll be back in school. Even though... I'm not really excited, but <laughs> the excitement will start to kick in soon, I say. Um, and yeah, I feel like after all my treatments, I've never really felt like a satisfaction of it's working, but I feel it this time because it just makes more sense. Like even yeah. the CAR T, like I've never really understood. Like the first time they gave just chemo, like it's going to destroy the cells, but like most likely it's going to come back. You need some, I feel like it just makes sense to have something to replace the cells. Mm. And that's what they're doing this time. Like and it's they, using your own cells. Yeah. it's Like the transplant is always yeah. going to be somebody else's cells. Mm. This was his own cells. Your body's not going to reject your own cells. You know, they yeah. took his cells, genetically modified them, put them back in and they're, and they're armored up now for life. If a leukemia cell comes up, the science is they kick into gear and they kill that cell. So it just felt right from the very first little bit of research we did on CAR T cell therapy. It just felt like the thing that he needed. And I mean, look at him now, six weeks post CAR T. I mean, six weeks post transplant, he was on the floor, yeah. you know, and here he is out cycling his bike. So, I mean, it's, it's, it really is a game changer. It's fantastic. It's amazing. And such a testament to show that cancer research and what they're doing to discover different ways to treat this disease obviously to save lives but also to maximize the quality of life whilst saving yeah. that life yeah you know it's yeah. it's it's brilliant and, I, and i'm so thrilled to know that it is finally in ireland that families don't have to put that extra weight of traveling over that it is here it is being administered and it is obviously 
fingers crossed working yeah it's the future now thank you so much for telling me your experience why this podcast is so important is because as you said when you're in the depths of it nobody knows nobody knows what you're going through except you but there will be people listening to this that just need to feel like you know they could be out for a walk right now or out for a cycle and they just need to listen to it to appreciate they're not the only ones that are experiencing you know this grief and this trauma and this journey and they will take inspiration Alex from your mindset they absolutely will not many men young men your age have this kind of perspective that you have on life the appreciation for your own body for your own health you know for for taking back control as you have I'm well into my 30s I still don't have that (laughs) well done (laughs) well done for everything that you have fought and for how you will not give up thank you yeah He's going to change the world. Yeah. <laughs> he is. He's going to tell a story and he's going to keep telling the story. And, you know, hopefully we can inspire a couple of families to understand that you can get through it. You can take the support. You can laugh through it. You know, you can have good times in the middle of it all. And you can hold each other up and come out the other end and go, we bloody well did it. And we're still here and we're not stopping now. And it will pass and whatever, pass. like the longest times I've been in hospital really but every time we're in it's just it will pass it'll pass and yeah. it does even though it takes ages it does pass keep it in the day i think yeah. if you can keep it in the day you know tomorrow is always a new day and it's not always easy to think like that but if you can keep coming back to that you, you know you can get through yeah. anything and i one thing i would say to parents is don't be afraid to say yes to support when alex is diagnosed the first time a very good friend of mine lisa smith phoned and said community is just devastated we want to help you can we do a fundraiser and I said no I, don't, I, I didn't want to be that family that needed a fundraiser and she said would you just think about it and I said okay I'll think about it and she came back and said would you let us do it for us and I did and the fundraiser was amazing this was pre-covid times and the they had a night out for us in a uh, in a local pub and a pub, pop quiz and whatever And the support from that night, the lift that that gave us, plus it gave us a financial boost that got us through the following six months. When he relapsed again, the same girl said, can we do a GoFundMe? And immediately I thought, oh God, everyone's already done so much for us. But actually we needed it. Mm. I mean, just hemorrhage money when you're living in a hospital. Hemorrhage it. Between paying for support, paying for parking, paying for food. I don't know what happens. But all of your budgeting that you normally do goes out the window. And we're not badly off. We both have good jobs. But you hemorrhage money. And it's just as simple as that. People want to help. Let them help. And so many people said to me, thank you for letting us help. And I thought, oh my God, I'm benefiting from the help. But they're feeling so good about the fact that they were able to help. So I know it's really hard to accept help. And I'm a great one for helping. And I'm not so good at taking the help. But I have learned people want to help let them help because they feel good and we feel so good because we are then able to survive the next six months or whatever it is you know so my biggest advice would be ask for help to the likes of those charities you know I've heard parents say oh no I'm sure they have people that are worse off than us I don't want to ask and I'm now saying to them no no they want to help you please reach out and ask for their help because you're the person they want to help and then they kind of go really you know, so I think we just have to 
we're so good at brushing it off and saying, no, no, I'm fine, I'm fine. I'm not fine. I'm falling apart here. Can't pay the bills. People want to help. So just say, thank you. Yes. And I know it's really hard to do it sometimes, but for yourself, for your well-being, for your family and for them, just say yes and thank you. And reach out to charities because they love to hear from families and they really want to help. I know that from Childhood Cancer Ireland. I know it from Hand in Hand and Oscar's Kids. And sometimes, sometimes you think, oh, I, I better not ask because I've asked before. And you ask and they say, oh my God, we're so happy to be able to help you. You know, so that would be my biggest advice. Say yes and thank you. And can you help me please? <laughs> well, thank you for saying yes to be a guest on this. And you've Pleasure. helped massively by sharing your story. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this Gold Ribbon Conversation. There are more Gold Ribbon stories written by those fighting childhood cancer on our website, childhoodcancer.ie, and you'll find a link in our show notes. If you can, we would love you to share this podcast across social media using hashtag Gold Ribbon Conversations as it can help more families to discover this show. This podcast was produced by The Brand Story for Childhood Cancer Ireland, hosted by Sinead O'Moore and sound production by Alan Breslin.